Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hello, everyone. I am Adam Conover, and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. As you probably know, if you're listening, I host a TV show on True TV called Adam Ruins Everything. And on that show, I talk to incredibly fascinating guests from around the world of human knowledge. Uh, and on this podcast is when I talk to them for longer and get to ask all the questions I was dying to ask on the show but didn't have time. And if you haven't seen the TV show but you want to check it out, you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash adamruinseverything and the Watch True TV app. My guest today is Daryl Atkinson. Now, I am so excited for this interview. You might remember Daryl from our voting episode, from our first run of episodes in 2015. He was also on our episode about prison this year. Um, He is one of the most impressive and impactful people we have ever had on the show. And in fact, the conversations that I had with him on set the first time we had him on the show were one of the things that made me want to do this podcast. Daryl's story is so incredible, and he's such a fascinating person to talk to. And he talks about such difficult issues. Issues about our criminal justice system, our prison system, uh, the way it disenfranchises people in such a clear and compelling way. Uh, you meet the guy, you can't help but fall in love with him in the way he talks about these issues. So um, I'm so excited to talk to him. He is, just to get his credentials out of the way, he is a senior staff attorney at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, where he focuses on drug policy and criminal justice reform. And he's currently on leave with them to work for the Department of Justice in D.C. working on these issues. Let's just take it away with the interview. uh, And uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. Okay, hey, I'm here with Daryl Atkinson. Hey, Daryl. Hey, how you doing, Adam? <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you've been on the show twice now on the TV show. Uh, you were on our voting episode last year, and you were on uh, this year on the prison episode, which, if we have timed the podcast correctly, will have just aired when uh, this is released. Honestly, you're one of my favorite guests we've had on the show, because I find the way that you speak about these issues is so clear and helps me see them so clearly. Well, I appreciate that. I, um, so, but on the show, we introduce you so briefly. We, you know, you just say, "Well, I was uh, formerly incarcerated, uh, nonviolent drug crime, got my law degree," mm-hmm. and then we get onto the issues, right? Could you sort of fill in some of those blanks for us and and sort of like uh, tell us what your path was? Sure. Nineteen ninety six, I was convicted of drug trafficking, and I was sentenced to a ten year sentence, served a mandatory minimum of forty months on that ten year sentence. Wow went into different levels of institutions, minimum, medium, and ended up finishing at a maximum security institution. Uh, The place where I finished my sentence, 60% of the population had life without parole. 
Wow. Uh, you would ask those young men how much time they had. They would say all of it because a lot of them weren't ever coming home again. Jeez. A uh, place full of hopelessness and despair. Um, but it was also the place where I met the individual who really planted the seed and inspired me to want to be a lawyer. Huh. So he was a jailhouse lawyer. <clears throat> and just if if I could have a moment to explain the significance of that. Yeah, so I was going to ask. In, in the state of Alabama where I was incarcerated, um, you had a constitutional right to counsel at trial and at your direct appeal. And after that was over, you had 24 months to file any habeas post-conviction remedies to try to get your, your case overturned or a change in sentence. By that time in people's trajectory, any money that they may have had to pay for legal counsel has run out. Mm-hmm. Uh, So people who knew how to do law work inside were very powerful and important people. And so the individual that I met at St. Clair Correctional Facility where I was uh, was named James McConaughey. And James used uh, that knowledge and and skill that he had with the law uh, as for good. He used it as a as an organizing opportunity. And I can remember this one particular scene in his cell, as clear as day, me and him are sitting down talking. A guy walks in with a pillowcase full of coffee and cigarettes and dumps them <laughs> out on his bed because that's currency inside, Adam. That's money. He's paying his law bill. He, with yeah, he's paying, he's, he's paying his law bill with coffee and cigarettes. Wow. And he dumps them out on James's bed, and he was like, I want you to work on my case. Yeah. And McConaughey was like, I don't want your jail money. And you got to picture this guy. He's like 5'2", diminutive guy, <laughs> full of charisma. Yeah. Another guy he's talking to is like this huge guy ripped and everything. And he's telling him, uh, I don't want your jail money. And then the guy's like, well, I'll get my, my wife to send your wife a money order. And then that way you could have, um, you know, yeah. you could have free world money. And James was like, I don't want your money. And the guy said, well, what do you want? And that's when James knew that he had him. He said, I want you to learn the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Alabama Rules of Civil Procedure, Evidence, and Criminal Procedure. Wow. And then go do political education with Brother Mafundi Lake over there. And he said, oh, by the way, you're the guy in cell block four who, uh, who, who runs the Crips, right? And he was like, yeah. He was like, I need you to drop your colors. So he used it as an opportunity to change behavior. Wow. Some people would stick. Some yeah. people wouldn't. And on any given day, Adam, when, when yard call was called, instead of going to play basketball or lift weights, you would have, you know, 30 to 40 men walk into the law library to go work on each other's cases. Wow. And you would have some guys over there researching cases. Another group of guys would be going through combing through transcripts and looking for key facts, and him and this other guy, Chalmers Wright, they would be typing out briefs to file with the courts. And James was successful. He got, like, during, I was probably with him for about 14 months. I saw him maybe get 10 to 12 men out of prison. Wow. Because their parole had been, or their probation, or what have you, had been revoked erroneously. But that wasn't the thing that attracted me. It was the hope and sense of purpose that he instilled in men who had really given up. And in in such a what you just said as a hopeless place, especially a maximum security prison, I exactly. know is exactly. especially harsh. And to like use that ability to organize people and to I don't know, yeah, create a community of, of people learning the law and, and yeah. helping each other. Absolutely, he shifted. He was able to shift the culture of the folks that he was working with. Yeah, 
so they could have a sense of hope and purpose. And before that, you know, you know, before that experience, were you, you know, interested in the law at all or interested in those issues? I mean, or I, you were just at a, yeah, not at that level? Or? Well, I mean, I, I had I graduated high school, you know, was into athletics, mm-hmm. um, ended up getting hurt playing sports, couldn't pursue that in college anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, l- introspection, you got time to do that in prison. Right. <laughs> And looking back on it, I got a lot of external validation from playing sports. Yeah. And when that went away, I knew another way to get that same kind of external validation. Right. And, and you know, so that was from pushing weight and, yeah. you know, being in, in the drug game. And I got jammed up. Um, but I'd always had uh, a sense of wanting to be uh, involved in activism on some level. Right. You know, even when I was in in high school or whatever. So and there's a little kernel there. So of, those seeds were there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I finished my sentence. My folks come and pick me up. Hey, funny story. They came and picked me up in a Lincoln town car. Right. <laughs> Seriously. Now they have <laughs> two. Come home in style. <laughs> they, they had two operating vehicles. Right. It didn't dawn on me at the time. And, and, you know, they came and picked me up in a vehicle, something more suited to take a date to the senior prom. They're coming <laughs> yeah. to pick me up from prison. <laughs> And it's a momentous occasion, yeah, though. You know, true. true. How, how old were you then? I was I was twenty nine. Okay, yeah, I was twenty nine. And you had spent how many year, forty months? But yeah, forty months, about three and a half years. Okay, and and it didn't dawn on me at the time, but I asked my stepdad maybe a couple of years later, "Why did you all rent that vehicle to come pick me up from prison?" Yeah, and he said, "We wanted you to leave that place in style. We wanted you to do some grand gesture to truly welcome you home." Yeah. And that kind of thought process animates the work that I do now, which we're going to talk a little bit about later. I would love to. Imagine if we welcome home the 650,000 people that are released from state and federal prisons every year. Right. The other 10 to 12 million that cycle in and out of jail because they're someone's son. Right. They're part of our community. They're someone's relative. Somebody cares about those people. right? Right. And if we see them as people. I think it would radically shift, you know, how we treat them once they return back to our community. Yeah, but that's six that's six hundred thousand people being released a year with and we talk about this in the episode with very, very little resources yep. with which to just sort of I mean the I think the image that we have from the movies or whatever, twenty five bucks in a bus ticket or whatever, that's no. not far from the truth. No. Well, in Alabama it was ten dollars in a bus ticket. <laughs> Cost of living is lower in Alabama. It's not L.A. You know, rent's a little cheaper, I guess. But that's still, yeah, that's still like. And and so to, you know, that number of people being left, you know, sort of released at the the very bottom of the societal heap, you know, is such a. It's with the deck stacked against it. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So so how did you so from that moment, how, how did you move into the law? So, you know, I went back and moved to Columbia, South Carolina with my mom. She was, you know, uh, I was blessed to that she could provide me food, clothing and shelter, which so many people may not have. They may be released to the halfway house or the mm-hmm. homeless shelter. They may not have family support that they can count on. And that level of stability allowed me to make rational decisions. So I went back to junior college, got my associate's degree, applied to one of the flagship four-year institutions in the state, 
Mm-hmm. They denied me, even though I had a 4.0 GPA. Jeez. And I knew it was because of my criminal history. Yeah, I mean, what, uh, what other reason would yeah, it be? Yeah. Ultimately, I, I got accepted to a historically black college and university, uh, Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina. Graduated there with a 4.0 GPA. Wow. Because I knew, one, I knew that I had to excel because of my past. Number two, I was kind of tickled to be back in a classroom setting, you know, <laughs> yeah. after being in prison. I mean, it was cake for me to, you know, yes. to study and learn. It wasn't a burden at all, right? Yeah. So it was something that I was... Well, if you'd been spending your day, you know, in between, you know, being in maximum security and then going to the law library, yeah. it's like, if that's what you were doing, it's just that, but you're not in prison. It's easier. <laughs> yeah, it's much easier. <laughs> I assume it's the, yeah, you, you have the itch, but now you can actually really go do it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So... Graduated Benedict, uh, summa cum laude, 4.0, applied to six different law schools, got five rejection letters. <laughs> again. <laughs> and once again, my criminal history was a barrier. Yeah. Um, and I, but and I assume you're writing, are you writing like personal essays these places? Writing going, personal essays. You know, hey, I have a record, but, yep. I, but uh, yada, yada. And they're be, still like, nah. Being very candid about it. And because I was uh, such a good student, my pre-law advisor at my four-year institution, start calling these folks. Wow. Like, why isn't he getting accepted? And they started, you know, fessing up that it was because of my criminal history. Wow. Uh, but some good Dorothy Day Catholics in Minneapolis, <laughs> Minnesota, <laughs> accepted me. University of St. Thomas School of Law gave me a, a, a full-ride scholarship, went up there, finished in the top third of my class, was voted as the graduation speaker amongst my peers. Wow. Did really well, passed the bar in Minnesota, then moved to North Carolina and started my legal career. Wow, that's incredible. So let me just ask, before we move on to the kind of work you do now, that's such an incredible story. And I I can imagine some people in your situation might say, hey, I was able to do it. Why can't other people do it? You know, like, hey, look at me. I'm a success story. Everyone should should follow my uh, my lead. And I'm just wondering what what your you know what your relationship is with that fact that that was a trajectory that you were able to yeah. uh, accomplish after prison while uh, others you know end up you know recidivism rates etc you know yeah um i believe that i'm not so special or unique mm-hmm. i don't have any delusions of grandeur that is something so great about daryl right <laughs> um i think the only thing that separates me from a hundred brilliant men that i left behind the wall was that i had that viable support system yeah I had that level of stability where I could make rational choices. I didn't have to worry about where I was going to live. I didn't have to worry about what I was going to eat. And that provided me a sense of clarity to be able to chart a path that I could follow. Other people could do the same thing if we make public policies and have programs in place that provide that level of stability for folks Uh, so they can be successful as well. Yeah, That's how we take it to scale. Got it, and that's sort of what the work that you do is exactly. So after so after uh, law school, and uh, you you started doing that kind of work. What uh, what did that entail? What is that? Yeah, so I initially started uh, at the North Carolina Office of Indigent Defense Services, where I was overseeing uh, public policy and training for public defenders. So I remember we were talking about yeah. earlier about yeah. about the public yeah, defender the lobby, community. Yeah. yeah, and and I actually did that work for a while, so I know what kind of stresses that those folks are under. 
And then uh, I landed at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice and built a program that exclusively focused on the restoration of the civil and human rights of people who've been involved in the criminal justice system. We do that through community organizing, changing public policies, direct legal services, and, and shifting the narrative, strategic communications, where we're really attempting to change the way that we think about people who might have been caught up in the criminal justice system. Got it. And and we that's how we found you for the for the uh, first season of the show. Last year was uh, when we were talking about, you know, doing this episode on voting, all the problems with our voting system, and we wanted to talk about felony disenfranchisement. And so we, you know, we're looking around for people doing that kind of work. And, uh, yeah, that's when, you know, so we're like, oh, okay, great, Daryl can talk about that. He's a, you know, he's a lawyer, and he can speak to it uh, on a personal level. I believe it's that you, you still are not able to vote in your home state. Is yep, that correct? state of Alabama, I'm still denied the ability to vote, even though I'm barred to practice law in two different states. <laughs> Go that's, figure. That's crazy. Well, he's you know, well he he moved a little drugs a couple <laughs> decades ago, but yeah. you know, uh, so yeah. it's like a very yeah. ridiculous point of view. Yeah, and that almost see, that issue. By the way, there's a little bit of movement on that. Finally, like I, didn't the governor of Virginia just restore voting rights? To, governor uh, of Virginia restored voting rights. However, the the he faced some opposition from um, Republican opposition, and they uh, I think filed a lawsuit, and the Supreme Court overturned. Really? Yes. It was overturned. I didn't hear yeah, that. Overturned his uh, broad restoration of voting rights. They say that he has to do it piecemeal. Got it. He has to go like group by group or something. Yeah. Or yeah. I mean, I understand. There's this weird problem with anything voting related, where even when people think it's a good idea to make the change, because the current equilibrium of the number of people that live in the state elected the current people who are in office, they usually don't want to change. Who the voters are like, we don't want to add, you know, a couple hundred thousand uh, voters to the rolls because we don't know how they're going to vote. You know, it's like this weird conservatism. But but, about but, it. but but you would think, right, that whoever was the decision maker <laughs> yeah, who restored point. their rights, folks would have maybe some <laughs> allegiance. Yeah, exactly. You would think they you would think the parties would be competing to see who could restore voting rights first. That's an excellent point. Because folks might have some level of, of allegiance to their party. <laughs> yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a really good point in favor of, uh, I don't know, civil rights expansion in general. And yeah. like, like for poli- but but it, it tends to be the opposite, where they don't, they don't want to expand it because they don't want to, I don't know, rock the boat. And then they're, I don't, I don't know, whatever prejudice they may have themselves. But... Uh, Look, when when we had you on set, you know, a lot of us, you know, the writers and producers, I'll chat with you, uh, um, uh, got to know you a little bit. And then you planted this seed of like, look, it's not just, uh, you know, felony, felon disenfranchisement. That's the issue. There's a whole suite of rights that are sort of stripped away from uh, the formerly incarcerated that we, you know, didn't really know about. And, And that's the broader work that you do, correct? Correct. And I would even expand it a bit formerly incarcerated, and people who've just been convicted of crimes. Huh. So just being convicted of a crime triggers civil disabilities or what's called collateral consequences. So you mean people who have been convicted but maybe didn't actually go to prison, they just exactly. parole or Exactly, or, or probation. So the vast majority of people who go through our criminal justice system don't go to prison. They are under some form of community supervision, probation, or something like Got that. It. So they might have been convicted of a crime, still walking around every day, paying taxes, living their lives, but faced a host of barriers that can impact uh, their ability to participate in mainstream society. Uh, the American Bar Association cataloged these barriers, and it's over 46,000 
nationwide collateral consequences that uh, impact your ability to live in housing, education, volunteer in your kid's school, join the military, be a barber, you know, architect, any host of different occupational or civic or domestic rights, they impact them all. So these are just like assorted, you know, organizations that maybe have some little rule in their bylaws or whatever that would restrict people with a record of some kind? They're, they're mandated by statute and administrative regulations in various states. I see. Yeah. And there's just tons of them. Like, you don't even know it's if you're the average I person. I think in California, there are 2,300. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. North Carolina, I think we got about 1,500. You add them up all nationwide, we come up with the number of 46,000. I mean, maybe you don't have an answer to this, but what's one that I would, like, never expect? Like, what's a really weird, specific one? <laughs> Um, one of my favorite ones in North Carolina is that you, if you're convicted of any crime of fraud or moral, moral turpitude, you can't be a pesticide applicator. <laughs> you can't spray bug spray. So. Was there like one guy who was it, something people? bad happened? There was one guy who was spraying bug spray, and maybe he was huffing it or something. Uh, yeah. And something bad was, happened. I'm a bug spray man, but it wasn't really. Yeah. And he and he sprayed a lot of kids or yeah, something. Yeah. And now, yeah. now that's a specific rule that there is. <laughs> exactly. Got it. But that's a very that's a silly one. But this is a serious like problem to navigate. Like, what did you face specific problems after you, other than being rejected from from the law schools? You know, sure. My my. So some of the collateral consequences that personally impacted me, my driver's license was automatically suspended uh, because of my drug crime. I was denied federal financial student aid to be able to pay for post-secondary education. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and, of course, we know about the felon disenfranchisement. Yeah. Man, um, it's such an interesting question because some of the things in that category sort of make intuitive sense to people, you know? Um, like, there's all, the, you know, the sex offender databases are, you know, I assume pretty popular, uh, for instance, and that, that sort of like it makes some kind of intuitive sense to people. Ah, well, you don't, maybe you don't want people living near a school or whatever. That there be some kind of rule, right? But taken together, it's like the weight of it seems too large, I suppose. But um, I mean, what do you chalk it up to? Is there is there a reasonable argument to be made that that you know people have been convicted of a crime like should have some restrictions placed on them in case yada yada? Or is it a is it a matter of pure discrimination? Or is it somewhere in the middle? Or so, you know, to your point, some of them are rationally based. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a daughter and she's four mm-hmm. and she go. I drop her off at daycare like millions of Americans all across the country. Right. Right. And if her daycare provider had a past criminal history of child abuse, that would be concerning to me. Right. And I may not want that provider to be teaching my daughter in school. Right. right? There's a rational relationship between that underlying criminal conviction and the prospective duties that she would be carrying out. Got it. But there are thousands of others where there's no rational relationship at all, mm-hmm. right? The two, uh, what you were convicted of and what that person may be trying to work and do have nothing to do with one another. Yeah, there's no reason to, de- to deny you financial aid because you were, like they're not worried you're going to go... I don't know, sell drugs at college or something like that. What, There's what, no rational reason. It's, what, it's what's, counterproductive. What's, inter- what's interesting about and they've amended the law since that time. They, mm-hmm. They've amended the law to where you can't receive financial aid if you were dealing drugs while receiving financial aid. However, it only applies to drug crimes. 
So I could rape, I could steal, I could assault and yeah. st- while receiving financial aid and wouldn't face that particular collateral consequence. It's directly tied to our punitiveness and war on drug kind of mentality that was going on yeah. in the mid-90s uh, and all of the hysteria around that. Which is crazy because, I mean, we're, we're doing, you know, a drugs episode this season as well, and... Uh, all those laws are in place. It doesn't feel like America is as war on drugs crazy as it was when I was a kid, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. But those laws are still in place and they're still, uh, you know, people are sort of shocked, uh, you know, to find out how punitive they are. Exactly. Some of them got rolled back slightly. So at one time, you know, um, under the Obama administration, the Fair Sentencing Act was passed. And that um, alleviated the disparity between crack and powder sentencing a bit. At one time, it was a hundred to one disparity. Really? Yeah. If you had five grams of crack cocaine, the weight of a Splenda packet, mandatory five years in federal prison. Wow. You would have to have a half a kilo of powder cocaine (laughs) to get that same mandatory minimum of five years in prison when... I, you know, when people take that half a kilo and add baking soda, water and some heat and make a whole bunch of crack. Yeah. So it didn't make any pharmacological sense. <laughs> um, yeah. The one is making the other. Exactly. It's it's making tens of thousands of doses. Exactly. Uh, but it's the same. Oh, it's so senseless. Yeah. So. Uh, so my understanding is uh, you're at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, and right now you're working at the DOJ, at the Department of Justice, yep. correct? U.S. Department of Justice. I'm kind of on loan from the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. Uh, I had an opportunity to you know, work with the Obama administration and try to push some criminal justice reform issues over the finish line in the last year of the administration. And uh, it was an opportunity I couldn't turn down. My right. employer was gracious enough to agree. And <laughs> well, it's in their mission statement, I think, that you would go help out. Yeah. 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 And so now I'm at the Department of Justice trying to influence federal policy to make second chances and opportunity available to people who've been involved in the criminal justice system. So what what is that like? I mean, I, actually, I'm kind of curious at the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, what is sort of your day to day and what's your day to day now? Sure. Day to day at at Southern Coalition could me being in a courtroom, you know, arguing that someone get their architect's license or be able to be an accountant or a barber. So or you're, you're actually doing uh, just doing that kind of straight up judicial work pro bono, like helping yep. people out, et cetera. Yep. yep. But we also would do policy work mm-hmm. to try to shift public policy at the local and, and the state level. Now my focus is really from a policy perspective, trying to shape federal policy to be able to create opportunity for as many people as possible. So, for example, uh, I help uh, add some input to some policy that the Department of Education put out where they banned the box on college applications. And you know I would have a vested interest in that, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because of some of my personal experiences. And, and ban the boxes for people who haven't seen the episode. Uh, that's uh, the- Delaying the question about criminal record history until later on, either in the employment process, but in the education process and context, in the admissions process, until someone has given a conditional offer of acceptance, then you do the background check to see if there are any red flags. Got it, but it's it's on the original application form. You, there's no box yep. that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Because if you're in a slush pile of a 1,000 applications, those are all going in the trash, and yep. those people don't even get considered. Yep. People such as yourself who... You know, had have a little bit of stain back there, but you know, have have plenty to consider them. Sure, exactly. Uh, got it. 
Uh, and I, I, it's funny because we were talking on set, and you said that you you were expressing some frustration about uh, the politics process, about trying to get stuff done yep. in Washington, as opposed to maybe it's a little bit easier in a courtroom when you know what your argument is, or you're talking to a judge, and it's a little bit of a different culture. Or well, it's much more within your direct control. Yeah. Right. And and so um, it's different in the Beltway. A um, lot of hardworking, well-meaning folks. Uh, it's just. The, the some of the, the institutional inertia sometimes can be can make things much harder to do than they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the payoff when you are able to get something done affects hundreds of thousands of lives, maybe millions of lives. Absolutely. So, it, you know, it's it's worth the slog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, the, the problem with the problem with politics is it's so frustrating and it's so, you know, oh, we should just be able to do the right thing and not have to argue about it. But. At the same time, it's what is it but trying to get people to agree? Like you have a lot of people; they all need to agree to do something. That's what politics is, right? Is you got to get a lot of people who don't all agree on something to all move the ball forward. It's, that's going to be difficult no matter what, and and it sort of ultimately becomes like something you have to master in order to make progress on issues like this. Yeah, absolutely. And but this is an issue: the, the, these criminal justice issues from both the right and the left. I was at an event back in my home state in Alabama. Uh, with the uh, vice president, general counsel of Coke Industries, Mark Holden, where the Coke brothers yeah. and the ACLU are are kind of seeing these issues from a similar viewpoint. Wow, really? They might have very different motivations. The ACLU's motivations might be social justice and human dignity. The Koch brothers' motivations might be economic efficiency yeah. and, and reducing the size We're of government. We're spending too much goddamn money on this thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. But they're coming at these issues, um, you know, is is resulting in a similar result where people want to kind of evoke change. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, these criminal justice reform issues, irrespective of whether you're looking at it from a, a social justice perspective, a human dignity perspective, a economic efficiency and even a public safety perspective, hmm. because if people who've been involved in the criminal justice system, return back to their communities and don't have viable legal options to work and take care of their children, Right. what are they going to do? They're going to be pushed back to an underground economy. Yeah. Uh, and recidivism means every time someone recidivates, that's another victim, yeah. potentially. And so we don't want that to happen. And the biggest mitigator, two key interventions, employment and education. And yeah. so we should be trying to open up opportunity for people who've been involved in the system to be able to have access to those interventions. See, now that's the beautiful part of the argument because it really is something that everyone can get behind, that everyone loves the underdog success story, right? Yeah. Everyone loves your story, right? Yeah. Who The person who leaves prison and, you know, through uh, uh, the support of their community and their own personal gumption, you know, uh, turns around and makes a success of themselves. They might love it for different reasons, right? They might yeah. love it because I don't want to pay for him to be in prison anymore. <laughs> or right. somebody else might love it that, oh, he's not knocking somebody over the head and snatching <laughs> a purse, the public safety frame. Right. Somebody else might love it like, wow, look at the amazing contributions and, the, you know, the from the social justice perspective. So irrespective of what your frame of reference is, I think there's a lot of convergence on this issue. Yeah, that per- that person with that story can go speak at the DNC and the RNC, and yep. both of them can say, we love this person, we want to support what they do, yep. um, and they can all get together on that issue. And that seems to be 
part of why it is an issue that, uh, shockingly, like Republicans and Democrats kind of agree on a little bit. Um, yeah. That everyone wants to cut the prison population, is my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. We're here talking to Daryl Atkinson. We'll be back in one moment, so please stick around. Hello, Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. And together we present Schmanners. It's extraordinary etiquette. For ordinary occasions. We explain the historical significance of everyday etiquette topics, then answer your questions relating to modern life. So join us weekly on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. No RSVP required. Check out Schmanners. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am here talking to attorney Daryl Atkinson, who appeared on the voting and prison episodes of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show. I, I Something that really stuck with me was we were talking on the phone about this about six months ago when we were doing, you know, our, our first steps for the new episode. And we were talking about doing an act in the prison episode about... Hey, it turns out Republicans and Democrats are coming together uh, and shockingly for an issue like this. And and maybe we're making some progress. And you said something along the lines of, yeah, well, that's well and good, but you don't want to put too much stock in the political trends of the day. That maybe next year something happens or they forget about it and they're moving on to something else and you still have all those all those people in prison. Do you still feel that way? Or Well, I mean, I guess the point that I'm I'm. I was attempting to make. Yeah, I, I don't like, mean to put words in your No, yeah. Let, let's not get too enamored with bipartisanship, right? <laughs> because it's one bad event. One bad thing's happened. It completely yep. derails it, right? So you remember in back in the day with Michael Dukakis, the Willie Horton. I was about to say Willie Horton. We're one Willie Horton away from potentially derailing any um, any momentum that it might have taken decades to kind of you know muster up. Uh, but I'm hopeful because, you know, the more and more people of goodwill uh, find out about the enormity of our system, you know, 5% of the world's population, we have 25% of the world's prisoners. Oh, and that begs the question, right? Yeah. Either we're the most morally depraved nation on the planet. Yeah, like or, it, the, the citizens of America are going are crazy. Really, yeah, yeah, really bad. American exceptionalism turned on his head, right? <laughs> Yeah. Or we're doing something really, really different than the rest of the world right. with regards to our criminal justice system. And right. we're spending a ton of money, right? $80 billion a year just on the corrections component, just holding people in cells. When you factor in policing and courts, we're up to $200 billion a year, wow. every year. And the enormity of this system has grown completely out of scale. A lot of people are agreeing it, on it. Libertarians seeing it as a huge, big government run amok. Evangelical conservatives are like, what about redemption and second chances? Yeah. You know, the, the folks on the, the, the left are like, what about the human dignity? Why are we incarcerating so many of, of our marginalized communities? Because right. our incarceration rates are highly racialized. Uh, African-Americans and Latinos, yeah. roughly about 30 percent of the general population, 60 percent of the prison population. So there are a lot of reasons for us to really interrogate why we have so many prisoners. Well, let, let me ask you, and you don't have to have a good answer to this question. I, I mean, why do you think we have so many prisoners? <laughs> what 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 is it? You know, I, I mean, because you say uh, 
you know, government run amok, you know, um, there's so many ways to look at it. There's, you know, I think some people are inclined to say, oh, it's just racism. Uh, if you look at those numbers and it's just getting those people away from us uh, or, you know, is it is it fear of crime or, you know, was it was it some just some kind of government trend that yeah. no one had the guts to ever ratchet back or. Um, a confluence of issues. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of throw three out there. Please. Um, part of this issue is a labor issue as well. So it's hmm. this uh, Harvard academician, Bruce Western. Uh, it's this wonderful book if, you, if you're nerdy and read these kind of books like me, uh, Mass Incarceration, Causes and Consequences. And it was the National Academy of Sciences commissioned uh, this multidisciplinary group of experts to study why do we have so many people in prison in America? And this Harvard academician found that if you were born in the age cohort after 1969 and you don't have a high school diploma, your probability of being in prison was like 60, 70 percent. Wow. Historically, though, the historians tracked that and said that hadn't always been the case. Yeah. That hadn't always been the case in our country because we had labor to absorb less formally educated people into labor markets. We had automotive, we had textile, we had labor to absorb those folks where they could do an honest day's work, make an honest living, provide food, put food on the table for their families. That de globalization and deindustrialization dried that up. So that labor pool is gone. So that's part of it, right? That, that's fascinating. So the idea would be that for the most poorly educated people in the uh in the country that they don't have a place to go to make a they, living. They don't have anywhere to go now. Yeah. And unfortunately, they, they, they may be resorting to uh, underground economy, and mm -hmm. the prison system is is absorbing them. Right, and then so combine that, that with the war on drugs, which combine is the, that with the Yep, combine that with the war on drugs, combine that with, you know, just really kind of tough on crime that was a reaction to some of the perceived lawlessness of the anti-war civil rights movement hmm. uh, that was going on. And then factor in the deinstitutionalization of people with with mental health issues on on any given day. And, you know, I when when I do talks and at seminars and stuff, I usually have I have chocolate and I toss chocolate out to the crowd <laughs> for the people who can answer this question. What is the biggest mental health provider in this country on any given day is it, it rotates between three county jails in this country? Wow. So that, that Rikers Island. L.A. County in Cook County, which is Chicago, on any given day, they have anywhere between three to five thousand people in their stay with documented mental health issues. So in the 1950s, we deinstitutionalized. We 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 said there are too many people languishing in asylums. That's a bad thing. Yeah. Let's have community based treatment. We put people out into community, but we didn't fund community-based treatment, and now they're being absorbed into our criminal justice system. Wow, that's fascinating. So those are some of the meta trends that yeah. kind of lead to 2.2 million people being in, in prison. That's, that's Yeah, I mean, I, it is funny that I think of asylums as being, that's like an old-timey thing that doesn't yeah. exist anymore, but there's yeah. not that there's less mental health yeah. issues in the population, but... Yeah, the the idea of a mental health hospital is somehow outmoded. I never thought of that before. Well, it, it's not quite outmoded. It's just at your local county jail or prison. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's uh, uh, that's so startling. Um, 
the issue of mass incarceration as a whole. Do you have hope for it in the long term? I mean, the way the way you were talking about it a moment ago with every different group saying we uh, you know, this is not something that we want. This is something that's got to change. You know, are you hopeful that in 50 years we're going to look back at this and go like, man, what were those people doing back then? They locked everybody up. It was this crazy mass hysteria. It was a weird, uh, you know, societal uh, fad uh, where we were just locking people up for a couple decades and then we came to our senses. I, I, I hope so. And, you know, not to bring up a tragic event, but the police chief in Dallas to me really made a salient point during some of his comments, and it could be expanded broader than just police. We're asking our criminal justice system to solve problems that is ill-equipped to solve. Right. It is acting as the catch basin for all of society's failures. We don't want to properly fund schools and give people good education. We put uh, environmental toxins uh, exist in communities where people have access. Freddie Gray, for example, had cognitive impairment because he right. lived in a housing facility with lead paint. And what do you expect folks to go do after they are cognitively impaired and right. don't have impulse control and things of that nature? We don't want to properly fund mental health and, and substance abuse treatment, which is a health issue, which is a behavioral health issue. We've criminalized people because they can't get well from a chronic disease. That's like criminalizing a diabetic, right, or criminalizing someone who has cancer. They can't get well, and we're putting them, you know, in prisons. So I do hope that, you know, we're starting to come to our senses, and our grandchildren will say, well, Grandpa, what were you doing about that? Why were you all doing this? And we can say it was a blip, uh, you know, on American society, and we've, we've shifted and, and made some good change, of course. I hope so, but at the same time, the lasting effect of it must be enormous on the uh, the enormous populations of people. I mean, 2.2 million people in prison who have had that experience are going to come out and have their lives be drastic. I mean, even if you're look, even if you're just a free market capitalist, yep. the number of people who the effectiveness of their lives is going to be drastically, you know, uh, demolished by that experience is just is just staggering. Yeah, it's and and that's why it really is uh, a reason for a call to action, particularly with some of the huge demographic shifts that we're having in our country right now. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the term the silver tsunami. No, I'm and, not. And, and so demographers call the boomer generation aging out of the workforce yeah. the silver tsunami, uh, right? Yeah. While at the same time, our country is getting browner. Right. Yeah. We're going to be a majority minority country by 2040, 2050, depending on right. which estimates that you listen to. So if African-Americans, Latinos, Native folks have disproportionate contact with the criminal justice system, get in prison, have these collateral consequences, can acquire work, education to improve their human capital. Who's going to replace that dwindling workforce that's aging out? of our American economy, right? Oh, so we need folks who are gonna be who are gonna be able to be skilled up to replace that workforce right. because that's gonna impact the GDP and all of our four hundred one Ks, right? Right. And that's what hopefully can be some part of the call to action to create some national momentum to keep moving this forward. Right, because just on a just on a demographic level we're we're sort of disabling our own population exactly. in terms of in terms of their their fitness, their ability to to be effective, yeah, people. Even if, if you're just looking at it as a billionaire yep. running a factory, you're like, yep. my workforce is a bunch of them have been in prison for a decade. This is bad for business. Yeah, um, it's such a striking thing for me because look, I you know I uh, 
You know, I come from a background. I had never had any interaction with the criminal justice system whatsoever. I'm in a privileged position to not even really know anyone who, who has in my life. Um, so I'm really struck by the enormous gap between my experience as someone who cares about this issue, mm-hmm. wants to know more about it, and the experience of the people who it actually affects. You know, uh, a lot of us, you know, we were filming, you know, this prison episode where we're in the prison you know, we're in a disused prison. Actually, I, I believe it's a jail, actually. I'm not sure yeah. uh, uh, exactly. But, you know, we're in these cells that have been used for a couple decades. Now it's used just as a film set, but it was, you know, it was a functioning facility. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, actors or producers are in there going, like, just sort of facing the fact that there were people in here who lived there, you know, who, who lived part of their life in here. Um, and it's such a horror you know like like to me it's a genuine nightmare of an experience like in that it's literally a nightmare that i have <laughs> um and and uh that's such a huge chasm right um uh, of experience uh because it's you know something that i that i can't actually imagine happening to myself in the real world right when it's something that is the daily experience of so many of my fellow citizens you know yep. um but is there I, I don't know. Is there is there a way to to bridge that gap and to help you know more Americans like like come to grips with what we're doing to our own people? Yeah, I think you know to give you kudos, I think you're doing part of that work with the show with Thank this you podcast. So. I hope so. Um, and to borrow a concept from one of my from one of my good friends, Brian Stevenson, who's a, a civil rights lawyer in Alabama, works at the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, and he wrote this book, Just Mercy. He talks about this concept of proximity, that we have to be proximate to issues. And that yes. can happen uh, through personal experience. It can happen through listening to a podcast and hearing about the experiences of someone and finding out that, hey, they aren't so different than me. They dropped their kid off at daycare. They pushed their shopping cart down the aisle just like I do. They don't have five heads and six arms. And when we create that kind of proximity, and we need to think of other ways to do that, uh, when we create that kind of proximity, I think it really uh, diminishes some of that us versus them, some of that otherness, Mm -hmm. right, the boogeyman over there. Uh, and then the public policy that you want to factor in to that group of people is going to make sense because you see yourselves in those folks. And that obviously has class dimensions, race dimensions that we're still wrestling with as a country. Uh, but I think uh, it's something that that we can all strive to continue to do. And the more that the more success stories that we hear of other people who've been impacted by the justice system to find out like, hey, Maybe we could have had another societal response to the behavior that they were engaging yeah. in without locking them up for decades to yeah. to try to get people back on the right path. Uh, I think it would create that political will for people to want to take an alternative approach. Yeah, that uh, that puts me in mind of a, of like a slightly uh, maybe darker question. I'm, I'm sure the way the way that you put that right, we could have had a different societal response to that behavior, right? Yeah. Um, and I think about that a lot. Um, we talked about for our prison episode using a framing of what is prison for, right? Um, and we, it's sort of still there in the episode where is it for, uh, you know, punishment? Is it for rehabilitation, you know? Uh, you know, in this conversation, we've talked about a lot of reasons that people go to prison, and we've, we've uh, talked about it as being the result of some other issue, you know? Uh, e- lack of economic opportunity, well, that mm-hmm. person should, we should find a way to get them a job. Mental health, health issue, that person should get treatment, right? Mm-hmm. Lack of education, let's get that person an education. Uh, 
if we were to, you know, take all those people, right, uh, and and serve those people best, is there at the end still a, you know, prison system like that's for, our, you know, in your mind that serves a purpose or are all of these, you know, problems sol- best solvable through other means? So there, you know, if to out myself, I am an abolitionist, <laughs> yeah. but but I do believe that some form of incapacitation can serve a purpose. And there are some folks that I think um, have been so damaged mm-hmm. through their their life course that they are not going to play well with others. I think about some of the work that I did when I was a public defender, and I'm thinking about one particular case. It was a capital case where we were trying to we were representing a man that the state was trying to kill. And when guilt or innocence isn't the issue at that point is really you're trying to keep the person alive where they don't impose the death penalty. Yeah. And so part of that work is going back and looking through their family history to look at what created this output that we're seeing right now. Right. And as I'm doing some of that work, I can see where the person, this man cycled in and out of foster care. One of his foster parents burned him from the top of his head to the soles of his feet with over 200 cigarettes burns when he was four or five years old. Wow. That person has been so damaged and is so full of anger and hate and resentment that they may not ever be at a point where they can function well in society yeah. with others without wanting to harm other people, right? Yeah. And, and so it's no intervention that can maybe change that after all of that damage has happened. Yeah. So some form of incapacitation may be appropriate. Right. But the current form that we're practicing now, I think, is way out of scale. Yeah. And draconian is not rehabilitative in in nature. And once you know that about that person, you can approach that person with empathy and you can say, you know, this is a person who can't play well with others. And we we, you know, for the person's good and for everyone else's should be, you know, somehow kept kept separate. But you now if you have that appreciation, you you can at least say, well, I hope this person is treated uh, empathetically and, you know, is comfortable, right, as opposed to having a punitive mindset. or Absolutely. I think we forget that the punishment is the loss of your liberty. Yeah. It isn't that we keep you in a dark cell 23 hours of the day and yeah. you only get to see light 50 minutes out of the day. It isn't that we, we malnourish you and have you in in an environment that's vermin infested and right. and molding and decaying right the punishment is that your liberty is taken away yeah. your ability to move freely we should want to put those folks in humane conditions and and try to offer whatever therapeutic interventions that we can to even offer a carrot of hope to see if they are real if the opportunity for rehabilitation is there. Right. But for, but it it sounds like your position is that's a very small minority. Absolutely. You know, look, I was in a maximum security prison. Yeah. Where 60% of the population had life without parole. I would say 99% of those men were redeemable, but a lot of them weren't ever going to come home again. Yeah. Uh, It's so, it's so funny how the, how the, you know, the existence of the criminal justice system and of prisons is something that we so much take for granted in society. And then I feel like as soon as any person, not just me or you, but any person looks at the individual factors of a case, you 
always end up coming down to, oh, man, that person was the victim of circumstance or the victim to some degree, right? Yeah. Or is a person who's deserving de- deserving to be treated with empathy. It's only when people sort of see the you know, uh, the, the prisoner quote criminal, you know, as a, as an other, or as an aggregate that you say, Oh, well, those, those are the bad folks. Let's lock them up. And they have that default for them. Um, but you know, as soon as you just put, I mean, uh, we had a conversation about, you know, when we were writing the show is we have a, you know, a female, uh, inmate named Kendra on the show who, and who's a main character. And we're like, we want to make sure the audience feels empathy for her. And Mm -hmm. how are we going to frame that to make sure they know that she's like a good guy, Mm -hmm. you know? And then I realized, wait a second, if you're just introduced to anybody to, in, in the prison, you're going to be like, oh, I like this person. You, mm-hmm. you don't need to know, oh, well, they, were, they, didn't really, uh, mm-hmm. they didn't really hurt anybody or whatever. You just, you, you just know because they're a person that you're confronted with. Um, and it, it really seems like a huge part of the problem is that we're not – we don't allow ourselves to build, that, to build that empathy with folks who are incarcerated. And, and we don't allow ourselves – to think of others as malleable. Hmm. I, I, I remember a guy, you know, one of the unspoken taboos in prison is to ask someone why they're there. I've heard. I've heard. So, okay, good. <laughs> yeah. So I know that for a fact. Yeah, I definitely get, shouldn't ask. Okay. Yeah, yeah, don't ask. Uh, but you end up finding out. Yeah. One way or another, the rumor mill. And I remember working in a kitchen with the guy, stand-up guy, you know, wasn't, trying to set you up to get you in trouble or anything, you know, wasn't trying to do anything nefarious. Um, And he had probably been there about, he had a life sentence. He had probably been there about 22, 23 years when I met him. And I found out that he killed his mother. Wow. When he was 17. Wow. And I guess the point that I went, when I met him, he was 39. He was a different person then. Yeah. I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve some sanction for that horrific crime. But I'm also saying at 39 years old, he's a completely different person than he was when he was 17. Right. And I guess the point that I want to make is that people are malleable and no one is the sum total of the worst thing that they ever did. Yeah. That isn't all who you are. We're complicated people, right? Right. And, um, you know, all of us have varying degrees of capacity to to do both good and bad. Yes. <laughs> yes. And we should appreciate that and respect that in one another and respect people's ability to change. Yeah. It's amazing because it's something that we give to each other in daily life and we don't give to each other, you know, societally, you yeah. know. And I, and I often think about um, – when we were working on our drug episode, you know, we were talking about mandatory minimum sentences, and there's a part where I say, you know, uh, getting caught with this, and I hold up a little bit of weed, you know, could get you put away from, you know, two to ten years, I think I think is what it is. And and I was struck by the fact that, you know, hold on, I've, I've uh, you know, been around uh, countless drug users in, in my life, you know, and uh, and none of them uh, in my world are, are ever at danger of being punished for that. And some of them are using too much or some of them are selling or some of them are doing things that I, yep. I think are a little bit too much. But, you know, uh, I, I forgive them or they move on or whatever. And then I think of how little leniency other people in society have for doing those same acts that it's that it's well, it's one slip up when you're 17 and then it's uh, you, you know, it's a it's a long road um, versus the, the amount of credit I was given for having both good and bad in me growing up. Yeah. You know? And, and you know, the, you bring up the drug issue and the drug issue, I think, is an example of our otherness really being highly racialized yeah. in, in the sense that 
you know, people use, you know, in in drugs at roughly same rate. Yes, that we talk about. We, we said in the episode, yeah, white and black folks. Yeah, they they, they use, use marijuana same rate. Yeah, yeah, use marijuana, cocaine, and and you know, is there some? There's been a recent spike in heroin, um, and which pre- presents some interesting conversation pieces around some of the empathy that's been. You know, expressed in yeah. New Hampshire and Middle America uh, around the heroin epidemic. We had a we had a uh, you know a sheriff on the on the drug episode. I was talking about it, and, and I was like, oh, well, yeah, heroin and fentanyl is a big issue right now, but it mm-hmm. seems like people are taking it seriously. And he was like, yeah, people are taking it seriously because white people are dying now. Yeah. And yeah. that was the sheriff of <laughs> Seattle yeah. telling me that. Yeah, um, and 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 that's an absolute reality. And. People use drugs at roughly the similar rates. People buy drugs from people in their social circle. Yeah. So the frat guys who are getting high at UCLA, they aren't going to Compton to cop their dope. Yeah, Chad's <laughs> selling Molly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Chad down the hall has the Molly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But the level of enforcement is very different for different communities. Right. We are enforcing the, the breaking because you— if people are using this illicit substance and people are selling this illicit substance in their social circles, that means they're breaking the law at similar rates, but we're enforcing it very, very differently. Right. Oh, man. So, well, so let me ask you, let me ask you this for the person listening at home in, uh, you know, in my sort of in my position, right? The person who cares a lot about this issue, issue or, or has uh, woken up to it a bit. But, you know, doesn't have that sort of direct interaction, doesn't have that, that, you know, they don't, you know, doesn't have a law degree, can't go out and be a public defender, you know. Sure. People feel so hopeless about this. Like, what do you, you know, what kind of engagement do you, do you hope to see? What, what can you ask these people to, to do to activate themselves? I mean, there are varying levels. You know, you can write a check. Everyone can do that. You can find <laughs> a social justice organization in, in your state or co- the local Southern Coalition of abs- 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 Absolutely, and, yeah. and donate to folks who are on the front lines doing this work. If you're a business owner, let's say you're a small business owner, you yeah. can think about hiring some people who might have been involved in the criminal justice system. Yeah. You know, um, because they're probably putting in applications. Right. And, they, and they're probably qualified. And that's a really key point, Adam, that I want folks to remember. We aren't talking about giving folks anything but an opportunity. Mm -hmm. We're still about meritocracy. The person who's most qualified, the person who's most talented, that should prevail. But right now we're shutting off a whole lot of people, leaving them on the sidelines because they might have had a past contact. So we need to make sure that those folks have opportunity who have who had previous involvement while at the same time we need to start turning down the faucet right yeah and decriminalize some of these behaviors that can be dealt with in other ways right and not funneling people in the criminal justice system in the first place right and, and what do you think you know if we just had to tackle one of those you know right now we're, if we're working on that end of the faucet you know uh, what do you think is the is the one that's sort of most easily addressable or the most or the most prominent in your mind? You know, yeah, I'm I'm gonna push back a little bit because it, it <laughs> please do <laughs> because it it begs a silver bullet approach. Yeah, and this yeah. thing is really really complicated. Yeah, and I, I you I, know we got to be able to walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. But to your point, there are in different states and in different jurisdictions 
there are different leverage points. So some some folks in some states are really looking at bail reform. They're looking at, you know, it doesn't make any sense to have so many people pretrial detained because they can't afford to pay bond. So let's get rid of cash bail. And if someone didn't really a threat to society, let's let them out, you know, so they mm-hmm. can go on about their life until their day in court comes. In other places, it might be back in other system issues, right, where we're talking about ban the box or restoration of voting rights, this, that, and the other. In other places, it might be reforming their public defender system. Yeah. So I guess what I would ask people to do, uh, obviously they can donate to social justice organizations. Let's just get more educated and abreast of these issues and really start trying to, to think of the, the humanity that we, wanna, we want people to treat us with. Right. And we should treat other folks with. I, I think that's an incredible message. I mean, that's that's the uh, when I first found out about the fact that when you go to prison, they don't give you enough of what you need. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? The, like the you need the commissary account because they don't give you you know yep. enough toothpaste or the right size clothes. And I'm like, what? Why don't they? Why don't they do that? They should. They need to give you at least some clothes to fit, right? Yeah. And I had that feeling of like people aren't getting what they need. It, it, it just you know builds that. I, I and and this is why to me. Programs like this and the show and, and, and you know, why I fly across the country to, to be a part right. of this are so important because I really I'm not Hobbesian in nature. I don't believe man is brutish and evil and selfish. Right. I'm Lockean. I believe people are, are, are genuinely coming from a good place, but they're usually operating off bad information. Mm-hmm. So if we can spread the word more and more and let just everyday John and Jane Q six pack know about these <laughs> issues, right? I really believe that they'll say they'll have the same reaction and say that doesn't make sense. Give people the right size clothes and get let them go take a class so they come out better and being able to contribute to society. And maybe we shouldn't have so many laws putting people inside anyway. Mm. So we need to work harder at getting more of this information out to folks of goodwill, and I think we can make some changes. Awesome. Well, John and Jane Q six pack, I hope you're listening. I hope you're not drinking too much, uh, and you could take the message in. Thank you so much for being here, Daryl. It's really yeah, it's, incredible to talk to you. Yeah, it's been it's been really cool. Thank you again to Daryl for coming on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris. And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget, please don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe, because that makes the show higher in the rankings on those various services. And then more people might listen to incredible points of views like Daryl's. Again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, airs Tuesday nights on True TV, and they run reruns all the dang time, so you can catch it there, or you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Until then, we'll see you on TV, and we'll see you in two weeks right here on your podcast. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.